By now, you've heard about Global Poker, one of the fastest growing online card rooms available in the US and Canada today. So what's stopping you from trying it out? Global Poker is a safe and secure social poker site that uses their own patented sweepstakes model. Signing up is easy. You can use Google, Facebook, or just an email address. You can always play for free on Global Poker, but you can also buy gold coins for additional play, which will earn sweeps coins that can be redeemed for real cash to a bank account, Skrill account, or even as a gift card. Get a free 5,000 gold coins when you sign up right now at GlobalPoker.com. Poker Stories is an audio series that features casual interviews with some of the game's best players and personalities. Each episode highlights a well-known figure in the poker world and dives deep into their favorite tales both on and off the felt. Hello and welcome to Poker Stories, a podcast brought to you by Card Player, the Poker Authority, and hosted by me, Julio Rodriguez. This is episode number 102, and it features one of the best tournament players in the world, Dan Smith. Just how good is Dan? Well, he has been on top of the high roller scene since it started, and has 9 scores of 7 figures and 22 titles on his poker resume. He has even cashed in 2 million dollar buy-in tournaments, finishing 3rd in both the 2018 Big One for One Drop and the 2019 Triton Super High Roller in London. All of that adds up to Dan being number five on the all-time money list with a ridiculous $37 million in career tournament earnings. He sits behind just Bryn Kenny, Justin Bonomo, Daniel Negreanu, and Eric Seidel. Despite being just 31 years old, he has been playing for more than half of his life. Prior to poker, Dan was a chess prodigy and was at one point ranked in the top 10 for his age group. He discovered poker one day while at a chess competition and found he had a knack for it. By his junior year of high school, he already had a bankroll that would rival many professionals. I personally believe that, for whatever the reason, Dan tends to fly under the radar a bit when it comes to casual poker fans. Despite being number 5 all time, he might not get mentioned as quickly as some of the others when it comes to discussing the all-time greats. I wanted to find out if Dan had a bit of a chip on his shoulder or if he felt occasionally overlooked as a player. But as you will hear in this interview, although he is very confident about his own abilities and is very proud of his accomplishments, he doesn't seem to care about the opinions of others or need any validation from the rest of the poker community. He just lets his results speak for itself. Perhaps more impressive than the poker, however, is what he's done with his charity, the Double Up Drive. Since 2014, Dan has helped to raise more than $16 million for various charities, matching public contributions dollar for dollar. Anyway, that's enough intro. Here's my conversation with Dan Smith. I am here with the one and only Dan Smith. Dan, how are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you uh, you riding out the quarantine well? Did you take the time to be uh, to improve yourself, or was it a lot of TV binge-watching? I've done some self-improvement. I have also mm-hmm. watched quite a bit of Survivor. Um, <laughs> I've been, there's been a lot of online poker action, and I've been really going after that, at least for some of it. I've done a good job of getting into nature and 
in the last couple of weeks, I've gotten super obsessed with racket sports like tennis and pickleball, and I'm completely hooked. Really? Yeah. Uh, how how are you? Uh, how are your skills? Well, did you have a history in, in those sports before, or squash or? Almost no history. I started playing tennis like a year ago. A good buddy and I started taking lessons at the same time, so we'd have someone to compete with. And then in the quarantine, it seemed like a particularly good social distance activity, and I've <laughs> been really getting into it, uh, tennis. And then since getting to Vegas a couple weeks ago, there's a big pickleball scene, and pickleball is a lot more forgiving than tennis. You can much more just pick up a racket and play. So I've been playing one or the other most days. Is pickleball like indoors against the wall? Uh, it is on a smaller court with a wooden paddle and you play with a wiffle ball. Um, so it's kind of like a combination of ping pong and tennis. Oh. You can play singles or doubles and doubles is more, more popular. So I play tennis for a little bit more of a workout and singles and like I'd say like a more intricate game and doubles pickleball is just really fun. Yeah, I was picturing more racquetball or squash indoors, air-conditioned, like I like it in Vegas. <laughs> I, I feel you, but I would not feel comfortable playing racquetball unless like I was somebody I was quarantining with. So That's true. Yeah, you're just in, you're just in that box of germs, I guess. Uh, yeah. Well, we will get to your, this kind of secondary poker boom we're experiencing online. But first, we have to go back to the beginning, as we do on this podcast, and talk about how you found poker... And even before that, so let's uh, let's talk about New Jersey. What was uh, what were you getting into over there? My first love was chess. I my uncle Paul got me a Dino Checkers set when I was six, and I remember for Christmas. And I remember grabbing the wrong box. I picked up chess instead. I didn't know how to read yet, but they both started with the letter CH and had a checkered board. Um, the first day I beat my sister on the third day, I beat my dad. And they, basically I've been playing tournaments ever since. And for the next decade, I would go to tournaments all over the U S and competing. Um, as far as junior players go, I was quite good. And eventually at the chess tournaments, everyone started playing poker games and that's where I got into it. Before we talk about poker, let's talk a little bit more about chess. Was chess something that was this was this a, a specific skill that you found that you had in chess, or did you find that you were good at everything growing up? Definitely not good at everything. I was um, I was a particularly good chess player, and I was like a fine math student and whatever. But chess, I really excelled. Uh, I think my highest ranking was ninth in the country for my age. Wow. So uh, what does it take to be good at chess at that age? Is it just more about memorizing the playbooks? Or uh, is there just a natural feel for it? It's not memorization because the game tree is so large. I believe... I know this sounds crazy, but I think it's true. I think there's more possible chess positions than there are atoms in the universe. <laughs> so the game tree is ridiculous. 
Yeah, and they say that about poker when it comes to solvers. <laughs> uh, poker is very forgiving. If you use the wrong bet size or sort of thing, you can generally, like, it's not a disaster. But in chess, an inaccuracy might just be, like, immediate game over. So I guess it has, like, chess is more about precision. Um, in poker, you fold your hand. You could kind of mentally check out and wait until the next next one in chess that definitely doesn't exist mm. there are a lot of factors um good study habits presence uh, pres uh, presence at the board uh, maintaining your composure not panicking um some people kind of collapse whenever they have a bad position there are just so many variables uh and i only had some of them like i was a good but not super great player do you have like a most memorable match i have knocked off a few grandmasters and i'm this is not going to be as impressive as it sounds but i had a match with the black pieces which are a disadvantage because white moves first mm -hmm. and with the black pieces in an official tournament game i drew leonoid Medashin, who was at one point ranked number four in the world. But I, I did play him like 10 or 15 years past his peak, and he let me know that I got lucky. But even <laughs> still, I was pretty juiced about it. Well, speaking of grandmasters, uh, I'm reading on Twitter now that you have a, a bet brewing with Mike McDonald over chess. Last year, me and mcdonald went to iceland together and we both played in this international tournament uh it was kind of a fun vacation he brought up in uh, you know I, I was gonna say he brought it up in jest but he wasn't he would act like absolutely bet on it that at 10 to <laughs> 1 he would bet on himself to make grandmaster and i could not stress enough how challenging that is and i just decided given that we were talking about other bets uh, this morning, I, I tweeted about it, and then he just announced that if I if people would bet four million against him to his four hundred thousand, he would bet on himself making grandmaster. And I think he's actually drawing stone dead, as in it's just not a thing that you could potentially do as a thirty-one year old. Uh, you, you think ten to one isn't even close? I, I mean, I. I I'm inclined to think that he has less than 1% chances of winning. But on the other hand, betting against Timex is really scary. That's what and I'm saying. Given, he just he turned himself into an NBA free throw shooter. <laughs> I know. Um, so granted, this only came up today. But my current strategy for this is to bet an amount that I could lose to him and still be friends with him. <laughs> If I lost a million dollars to him on this chess bet and I have a barbecue, he just can't come. <laughs> I'm thinking if I lose 200K, we could laugh about it and it's, it's okay. So I think that is what I'm inclined to do. But chess All right, is so just such a hard game and there are so many points where you get stuck. I think he just can't do it. Yeah, so if the rest of the poker community can come together to pick up Timex's free money, then you're in. <laughs> if I could, if it were betting against somebody who wasn't Timex on this possibility, I would just bet it all. 
And then it's just <laughs> that thing of, like, if you have a rule of not betting against Timex, it's a pretty decent rule. And also the sweat is terrible because it goes on for a life, you know? So you, you're never in the clear. Wow, yeah. So the, he doesn't even have a, time, a set time period. No. Wow, okay. Well, we'll see how that shakes out on social media. Uh, let's talk about poker because you're playing in these chess matches and all of a sudden somebody what, breaks out a deck of cards in between games? It was the moneymaker effect. Um, everyone was playing uh, online and, yeah, some... Uh, at night or in between games, people started uh, taking out the cards. Uh, I was mostly some. I was playing largely with adults, but some of the kids were doing it too. I started playing online a bit for the reps. Um, by contrast to chess, it just seemed like such an easy game. Uh, at chess, even not at the high levels, everyone is really trying their hardest to win all the time. And then if you see poker on TV, you see all these knuckleheads who are clearly not doing their best and just doing, like, silly things. It felt like the right game to be in. Um, I guess I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but also as, like, a 15-year-old playing these big tournaments, I would see the number 15 player in the country struggling to pay his bills. So it's just like a... As a game, it didn't seem that appealing. Poker, you see these people winning a ton of money on TV, and I just thought, why not me? Yeah. So you were, were you drawn to the money more than the, the game itself? I would say it was both. Uh, gambling has always been in my blood. My dad used to really like the horses, and I spent many a Saturday afternoon at the racetrack. Okay. Um, I have a distinct memory of winning $96 as a seven-year-old when I bet. He let me make one bet every day, and I made a $2 exacta bet, which means the first two horses, and I won $96. So then for the next several weeks, I would take my $96 to the track, and I'd be, like, studying the um, – I forget what, what the uh, papers are called that have the horse, the horse information in them, but I'd be studying the programs. And making my bets, and I just kind of assumed I was going to be printing money at this. <laughs> so gambling was definitely in my blood. Um, in addition to the money, at a certain point, I was like plateauing at chess, where if you get to 2200, that's technically master. And I was at 2150, but it's still kind of like a, it's a sizable hurdle to get over, and I kind of yeah. got stuck. You switch to a new game, and every time you play, you're learning and you're just crushing. Uh, I really loved it. And also the fact that I was making a boatload of money when I was 16 years old uh, didn't hurt. Yeah, so you're you're crushing it. You know, obviously this was back in the days when people were way worse than they are today. Um, uh, but obviously you were doing well enough that... You know, you were technically a pro, I guess, at 18. Is that safe to say? Yeah, totally. Um, I you, had you won, won that Heartland High yeah. School. Um, in, when I was the summer of my junior year, 
I won $30,000 at 3-6 no limit in consecutive months. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I think that would have made you the most successful 17-year-old in the country probably at the time. <laughs> I actually don't think that's the case. I think there were quite a few of us. And like, also one of my like early poker friends, Timex, he had a million dollars, I think, before he turned 18. I remember meeting Mike McDonald in Turks and Caicos when he was 18 years old, maybe 19. And, uh, yeah, everyone was saying he was the next, the next, uh, guy that was going to come up, but everyone looked at him like, who's this kid? Why does he have all this money? <laughs> Look at him with these high stakes, uh, ping pong bets going on with, uh, I think it was Matt Choppy K back in the day. I didn't uh, know that they were doing that sort of thing. Yeah. I think it was one of the few spots they could play live back then. Oh, when you said ping pong. Oh, yeah, yeah. They had some, there were some games. I think Isaac Barron was there on the island playing some high stakes ping pong with Nanad Medic. There was like some free throw bets. There was a guy who tried to stay in the ocean for 12 hours to get uh, paid. You know, wow. the, the usual degeneracy. Anyway, back to, to your story. So you're playing in high school. Is college. Like, are you considering college at all, seriously? Or is it just like a stopgap or what? I had plans to go to college. I thought the University of Maryland was a good fit for it being a fun school with good sports. It was a decent distance from my home in New Jersey, but not super far. Um, I thought it would be... Not so challenging that I could party a bunch and play poker and have okay grades. Um, given my success at poker, I was paying for it myself. I did one semester. I failed most of my classes. Uh, and given it was $40,000 a year, I didn't feel like it was great value. So I had the idea of moving to Maryland to become a Maryland resident. And then I would only be paying 8000 a year. Uh, in that year, I went to Europe and was playing the EPTs and all those tournaments abroad and never made it back to school. Yeah, because of the success, I'm assuming. Well, no, I didn't have any success. Uh, the year that I spent in Europe, so I think in 2009, I went literally over the entire year at live tournaments. Um, right, because you you broke out. You had a like a a win at the Heartland Poker Tour, first ever live cash. Um, yeah. In like March of that year, I was broke, and then I won the hundred rebuy in May for like let's just say thirty five k, and I had some money in my pocket, and I played the fifteen hundred Heartland Poker Tour event with a hundred percent of myself for a hundred k. By fall of that year, I had. Uh, like 300,000 and I was just decided okay I'm playing all these live tournaments gambling huge given I had spun it up recently if I need to I can do it again but my confidence was peaking um, I did not have any success in the live arena for the next several years and I probably just wasn't nearly as good as I thought I was but I also was running quite bad just 
But I mean, the nature of live tournaments, the variance is sick and the sample size is never that large. Did you ever have a point where you thought about quitting and doing something else? Never when I was losing, because also at this point, all of my eggs are so into the poker basket. Um, I always had this deep rooted trust in my abilities that I would make it probably. I'm actually not entirely sure where it came from, but I imagine the chess background did help. But I didn't really feel like I had an alternative to quit with no degree and no skills without money. I don't know what else I could possibly do. I have flirted with the idea of quitting once I had a lot of success and I no longer had to worry about paying my bills for a while, but that was much, much later. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to talk about that in a little bit, uh, but first let's get to some of that success. Um, I think the first time the poker media started to take notice of you was the back-to-back-to-back 5Ks <laughs> uh, on the EPT that you took down. Uh, was that kind of when you felt like, oh, I, I've made it as a player? I'm established now? In Australia of that year, I won the Aussie Millions 100K. And it, so it was a big result. I think I played good. Um, and then there was a lot of money. I, I kind of feel like that was really my first, like, claim that I am a high stakes player and I'm here to stay. Um, and then I, I ended up playing the 250 K shortly after that, um, like a, a few days later, which is completely outrageous stakes. And especially in 2012 games that big just weren't a, a usual thing. Now they're kind of ordinary, but, and then I would say those five K's in Monte Carlo, that was a, Really special run, and I think that um, I think that's when I it really just started to make a lot of noise. Uh, have you always preferred tournaments to cash? No. Um, if you were to look at some two plus two post of mine, I used to talk shit about tournament players, <laughs> but I now I think tournaments are. Actually, I think they are both good formats, but as long as you are playing with an ante, 100 big blind, no limit with no ante, I think is an awful game. But with an ante, I do enjoy cash games. I do enjoy in tournaments that you show up at the agreed upon time. There's no politics, no bullshit. You just show up and you play in cash um, cash games of a decent size that are open just don't really exist. I enjoy playing big cash when I get the opportunity, but I would say it's typically only a handful of times per year. Well, let's talk about that. So obviously there's, there's a lack of the high stakes games and the ones that are available, there's, you know, there's gatekeeping going on. There's people, you have to know somebody and play the political game to get in sometimes. Um, How do you feel about poker's, middle class these days or can can somebody even rise to your level easily these days if they go on a run you know like it seems to me like there's less and less options 
to jump up. What are you considering like the mid? Are we talking like two five or ten twenty or? I'd say even higher than that, like because there's a big gap between, you know, Bobby's room and the, and the next you know forty eighty game or whatever. I think there is a. And there is like a 200-400 game that does run. Um, but I do agree with you. It is a large jump over the last, call it, five years. I would say there's been very few new players who crack into the super high roller scene. Um, Ali is one of them. Um I guess Mateus, um, I don't yeah. know how you say his last name, but Einbinger, or I think he he is so, – actually, no, I was going to say he's – Oh, the German. playing sit and goes forever. Austrian, but yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, Matthias Eibinger. Um, he's play, started playing big in the last couple of years. Uh, I think it is very challenging, but not – impossible but the idea of i would say this games have gotten to be so big that you really need people for the most part if you're going to be playing 100k events other people need to be convinced that you are good and prepared to invest in you um i'm not super in the know about the economy of smaller games but it seems it seems challenging to just grind away your pretty nice living at mid-stakes games when a decade ago that used to just really be a pretty available thing. Right. Uh, well, let's talk about some of these tournament results because you have a lot of earnings. You're number five all time with just under $37 million, uh in live caches. Uh, I'm looking at your top five here. You have a third place uh, for $9 million at the Triton. You have another third place in the one drop, second place in the one drop, a win, and then a third place at a Triton. Uh, do you ever think about how much money you left up top? <laughs> when you look at no. those scores, do you think about what could have been, or are you just like, I got it done? Uh, in the immediate aftermath, there's usually a little bit of pain. In particular, like I got, I had the biggest score of my career, third place for 7.2 million pounds in Triton last summer. And for an hour or so, I was pretty cranky and upset. I was chipping yeah. forehanded. I thought I was really in a good position to win and it would have put me number one all time. And then just nothing goes my way. Um, but in terms of after the fact, definitely not. I think I have had great fortune over the course of my career. And honestly, winning another tournament, money doesn't really change my lifestyle at this point. When I'm particularly flush with uh, cash, I gamble bigger. And if I'm losing or illiquid or whatever it is i just gamble smaller um money doesn't really change my decisions and in terms of hoping for more accolades um doesn't really concern me so uh, i'm wondering what your thoughts are on 
How do you earn respect in this poker world? Who do you want the respect from? And who deserves it? This is a sensitive topic. And I would say generally when somebody asks, like, oh, is this person good? I find it kind of challenging to ask, uh, to answer rather. I think I kind of clearly am one of the best no limit tournament players of all time. So if somebody asks me what I think of somebody else, I would typically hold them to a high standard. Yeah, like like let's say if you were to put together a poker's Mount Rushmore, four faces. Uh, would you completely discount the old school players because of uh, their abilities not to hang? They they don't have the ability to hang with today's top players. On Run It Up with Remco, or maybe it's called Run It Back, but whatever his show is called, he asked me the same question. And my Mount Rushmore was Isaac Haxton, Eric Seidel, Stu Unger, who I actually know almost nothing about, but I just hear he is an all-time legend. Oh, I'm, I'm blanking yeah. on who my fourth was. Um, but I think, it's, I think it is a cool question. I definitely have respect for the previous generation um yeah i'm gonna have to talk to remco about that because that's my question originally <laughs> oh he sniped you he and sniped me i feel silly that i can't remember my fourth um was it a young guy was it an older guy let's see i said cash game guy it's just completely eluded me i'm sorry but you do have an interesting mix just with those three right there Quick note, guys, Dan got back to me after the interview and said that the fourth person on his poker Mount Rushmore would be Phil Ivey. Do you feel no, like you are all. underrated to the general public at all? I'm just not really that fussed with what people think about me. Um, I would say on my way up, when I first really started working at it, um, the respect of my peers was hugely important to me. Uh, in my young twenties, I had some issues with mental health and I would say I didn't have especially high self-esteem and the way that I thought I would get there would be by pursuing poker accolades and trying to get rich and becoming the number one GPI player. Mm -hmm. And I did all of those things and I realized my life was just kind of exactly the same. Um, like if you ask somebody on the street what he thinks of my poker game, who gives a shit? Uh, yeah. People are free to think whatever I like, and that's not going to have any impact on my life at all. Um, well, it's definitely the healthy response, obviously. <laughs> and it's great that you, that you got yourself to that place. A lot of play, poker players I talk to, they do it for the glory. They do it for their time in the winner's circle to hold up the trophy, to get their picture taken, and to have other poker players look at them and say, you're the best. But I guess for you, it's much healthier to just say, let the results speak for themselves. My therapist a few weeks ago had me do this exercise where I'm supposed to uh, write a eulogy about myself uh, just to like try to get an idea of like my sense of uh, what's important to me. And granted, I'm not a person who writes eulogies, but like I ended up not including anything about poker in it. Um, mm. 
Yeah, I think that says a lot. You know, I was talking to Bill Perkins a few podcasts ago uh, about his book, uh, Die With Zero, and how he he was all about what thinking back on your life with, with the important moments and almost nothing had to do with business or whatever. It was all like just interpersonal connections and stuff like that. And obviously you are on a mission not to die with zero, I would say, but to give back. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, uh, uh, what was the, the influence that Burning Man had on you and starting up the, uh, the double up drive? Sure. Um, I had a very profound week at Burning Man. Um, I'm I'm debating on how much drug use I'm going to get into discussing, but I suppose I'm just going <laughs> to jump in with both feet. Um, so I went into the desert hoping uh, hoping to really have uh, psychedelic adventures and learn a lot about myself. Um, it was much more impactful than I could have ever possibly hoped for. Uh, my dad died when I was 18 when I took him to a poker tournament and it was really traumatic and I definitely took a very long time to heal from that and maybe I'm probably on some level I haven't entirely healed um that's awful thank you um I think I had some degree of PTSD from it and I think when it people with PTSD take MDMA it affects them differently I ended up having this unbelievable uh a night where I felt like I was loving and appreciating myself for the first time. And I was for the first time, rather than focusing on my shortcomings, I was really blown away um, by all of the great things I had accomplished. And the fact that I'd become such an all time great poker player, I was able to see some uh, beauty in that. And then I just, kind of had the thought that given I'd become so great at this one thing, I must be much more likely than the average person to make a huge difference in the world. And I started giving some really high ramblings on the early foundation of what the double up drive came to be. Mm. Um, I run a nonprofit called double up drive where the idea is that we run matching challenges. So if you donate a hundred dollars, I find somebody else who matches it and both of your impact gets doubled over the previous six years. We've raised over $16 million. And, um, sometimes when I just like take a step back and think about the difference that's made, um, there was one year where my favorite charity called strong minds, they send me an email that thanks to our annual drive, 5,000 women in Uganda got to undergo 12 weeks of, therapy. And then I realized that Strong Minds was one of 10 charities selected. And when I just think about like the magnitude of the difference that we are making in the world, it was just super, super profound and wonderful. And then if I like go full circle, the idea that the pain that I experienced when I was younger being turned into motivation to 
do good in the world and reduce the pain of many thousands of other people. Um, I think it's just unbelievably beautiful and it's something I am very, very proud of. What I love about it is that you guys are very efficient with the money as well. You're only choosing these charities that are, you know, that are not throwing money at CEOs to run the funds or whatever, you know, people who are actually, where, where can the money do the most good as opposed to throwing it down a black hole, which some charities can be. I think the argument that there are bad charities is overstated and I do agree with you, but I also just, I do also agree that we choose some very good charities. Um, I think it, what's, what is cool about it is that we make it very easy for someone just wants to give their money and not spend a lot of time reading that they can trust that we've done our homework. Yeah, exactly. And while we, have done good. I think people are a little bit too quick to throw out the argument of uh, like charity not being good when I would say for the most part, charities are doing a lot of good and they're people trying their best. But I do agree with you that the better run ones do do a lot more good than even like the average one. Right. And you yourself are going to get more enjoyment out of giving if you know that your money is being utilized properly, I'm assuming. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Um, I think having confidence that your money is being uh, spent in ways that is both efficient and like agrees with your beliefs is huge. And I, um, different people can have different checklists as to what priorities they think are important, but I think if you have a good idea of what your beliefs are, you could choose something that resonates with you. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about life and work balance. Uh, I was listening to a podcast you were on five years ago, and uh, you were talking about this uh, DFS tournament you're about to play and how if you got this $5 million first place prize, well, then it would be smooth sailing from then on, and you'd be able to take your foot off the gas and, you know, not worry about things so much, you know, but $20 million after that, you know, do you feel like you're still, you still, uh, have time? You mentioned in the podcast, you said that at one point you weren't sure if you should go to a yoga class because it could cost you, you know, $3,000 in expected value or whatever. What podcast was this? This was Joey's podcast back in the day. Ah, that was a great episode. Um, something I'm just that wondering resonated if, with me. You know, uh, obviously, you've made five million since then. <laughs> I mean, there is a huge difference between the numbers on my Hendon mob and the numbers in my bank account. Um, I think people probably dramatically overestimate how much money poker players have and then you also have to account for taxes and expenses and charity um i'm doing totally well and i would say money isn't really a concern um i do try to really uh, i prioritize my mental health mostly above everything else and with that i also think um like the mind and body are well connected so i try to take good care of myself um 
as far as work life balance, I think it is still something that's challenging and it just depends on how good the games are and how exciting, uh, exciting and fun of a, a spot it would be to, to play. Um, I suppose there have been times in this quarantine where I really felt obligated to play like an unhealthy number of hours, but I would say for the most part, I have gotten better over time at having a healthy relationship with poker. But I would also say that the way that you get really, really great at something, you don't get that, you don't get to be super world-class at something by having a really healthy relationship with it. I think when I was (laughs) at my best, poker was far and away my most important thing. And now I've tried to have it as like, I don't know, my fourth or fifth most important thing. Uh, Are you still playing uh, DFS heavily these days? I only played for two seasons. Um, And are are you familiar with, with it? Like, you know that there's like cash games and tournaments? Yes, yes. So in my third season of playing high stakes DFS, um, I just looked at the cash game lobby and there was a 54 player tournament and I just looked through and it was a 1K buy-in. And I just remember looking through and I counted there were like six total players that I thought were not good plays. Mm. And I was just like, there's just no way you're beating the rake. It was a huge time sink. And it's not like I had some sophisticated model. When I was playing DFS, I just used like the public tools that were out there and like a couple of good sources of information. And then just, I decided that was enough to win. And then I'd be betting a hundred thousand or more every week on it. Um, I didn't think it was super sustainable and I didn't really want to spend 30 hours a week uh, continuing to chase this new thing. And I also sometimes worry that gambling all the time is pretty bad on your brain. So it was by the third season when I wasn't even that confident how profitable of endeavor would be, (laughs) I decided to uh, quit. But I will say, I'm going back to a thing you said a moment ago. When I was referencing the $5 million, uh, my buddy Aaron Jones actually did win that tournament. I had 5% of it. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. Remember that. Um, Yeah, so I I heard that you had a big win one weekend and actually sent a gift to an NFL player because because he came through for you. Yeah, so it was the second week, I think, of the NFL season. It was a $300 qualifier to a 100K tournament. The kicker for the Chargers, Josh Lambeau, was a rookie who had just come from Australia, and he kicked a 55-yard field goal to win me the tournament. I <laughs> sent him a gift basket and a note thanking him for hitting that field goal, letting him know he won me hundred grand. and he sent me back a signed football, which is currently in my living room. I'm looking at it right now in my living room in Las Vegas. So I think well, it's just like cool. a really cool, uh, cool thing, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it was almost certainly his first ever piece of fan mail. So I think it was pretty cool that it was a big deal for him and hundred thousand for me. It was an awesome sweat. Yeah, that's great. Did you try it with any other players? <laughs> See if you can get responses back. Um, hadn't considered it. Uh, 
I never really had such like a. Actually, there was one week where Thomas Rawls was uh, he was the late replacement for Beast Mode, and he went off for like a huge day. I won a quarter million that day, but I didn't think to send him a uh, basket. <laughs> yeah, they could have had you up there in Seattle on the practice field with him. <laughs> you never know. You should just spam all the players in the NFL, see who gets back to you. You know, you might end I mean, up with more than assigned football. <laughs> I mean, these gift baskets aren't cheap. Yeah. <laughs> um, so did you get to meet any players? I also have a signed football of Reno and Montana. Um, I grew up in Miami, so I was a big Marino fan, even though he was not the nicest to me when I met him in a, in a, in a uh, um, laundry, not a laundromat, it was a dry cleaner. <laughs> Well, in what context? Like, he was just rude or? Uh, yeah, he was trying to get his dry cleaning, and I was an annoying kid um, pestering him with a bunch of questions <laughs> uh, yeah. about Mark about Mark Duper and Mark Clayton. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he had, he had every right to be annoyed. You know, I used to follow him on his uh, – he used to have a, a charity golf tournament in South Florida. I used to follow him around and yell at him for an autograph. So, big Marino fan. Was he nice to you at least? Definitely was nice to me, but also he was probably paid a lot of money to be there at the FanDuel thing. But um, I flew out my two bros from New Jersey to sweat this big tournament with me. And one of my buddies like made a, a comment to Marino and so Marino just like threw him a pass. Like not he wasn't a part of the tournament or anything. And he just went out of his way to throw my buddy a ball. And I'm like, that's really cool. Yeah. That'll that'll win you over for sure, for sure. Yeah. Did your buddy catch it? Yes. Okay, good. Because you can't live that down if you drop that one. <laughs> no Marino hits um, you in the numbers. In that hundred right. K tournament, in the first uh very early in the game, my quarterback threw uh fumbled the ball and as a quarterback he doesn't know how to tackle tackles really awkwardly breaks his thumb and he's pulled from the game so it's like three minutes into the game i flew out my two best friends from home to come visit me and i'm just drawing stone dead to cash the tournament I was like, <laughs> oh shit yeah, my highest value player just went down i guess i'm gonna turn the tv off <laughs> <laughs> um we have some rapid fire questions to close it out if you're ready i'm ready uh, what is your proudest poker accomplishment? It's not a single moment, so it might be cheating, but super high rollers started becoming a thing in 2012, and I am on a short list of people who started playing all of them when they came out, and I have always, I've never been out of action. So right. I would say it's less than 10 guys who could say that. And I would say I have been among the top of the game for all of that. So that is any given tournament, the results are mostly irrelevant. Like variance is a real thing and luck is involved. But over the course of close to a decade, um, I'm very proud of that. How much do you hate being called the best player without a bracelet? Doesn't bother me at all. Um, yeah. And do you agree with that title? <laughs> so 
what does the best player even mean if it's the context of the best No Limit Hold'em tournament player who plays a lot of tournaments and has played a lot of tournaments over, like, the last decade? Right, like, we could exclude Um, Ali. (laughs) He hasn't been around long enough. Um... If you include mixed games, absolutely not. Um, re- like, really, who is the best poker player kind of doesn't mean anything. It's too vague. And I, I think there are definitions where I can fit it. And I think there are also definitions where definitely no. You mentioned that tournament you got third in that have had you had won, it would have made you number one all time. You're currently number five, just a, a hair behind Mr. Seidel. Um, is this something you care about at all, um, or is whatever comes, comes? Whatever comes, comes. Uh, I think the stats, with, stats without accounting for the buy-ins are pretty silly. Um, I think there would be ways to alter it. Having a few, ter- few $1 million tournaments, like, really skew the results, uh, I don't think it means all that much. Mm. But you'd like to be number one. <laughs> I would prefer to be number one than number five at the very least because it means I've won a ton of money in the interim, but I don't especially care. Mm. Okay. Let's see. Uh, do you collect anything? Do I collect anything? I'm not a huge things person. I'm much more an experienced person. Um, I have a pretty decent whiskey collection, but then I drink it. So I don't. But I don't <laughs> I, oh, you know what? Yeah, I have a I have a pretty I have a respectable whiskey collection. So I'll say yes, I do. I mean, it's made to drink. I applaud you for doing that rather than staring at the bottles for the rest of your life. Yeah. And uh, I don't get anything too crazy. Everything I have, I feel comfortable drinking in any situation. Can you tell me what's the most you've ever spent on a bottle? Um, definitely under a thousand. And I don't, I can't recall anything over like three or 400 bucks. Um, I probably bought, I probably bought something in Japan that might have been more than that. But I, um, I, I bought the Yamasaki 18, which is now like ridiculously expensive, and maybe it was like four hundred dollars when I got it. Um, I That's think a good for, investment. <laughs> it could have been an investment if I hadn't drank it. Um, <laughs> I think for like two hundred bucks, you can get a really, really wonderful whiskey and there would be huge diminishing returns beyond that but i'm not opposed to it like if, if it's your thing i guess within reason you know what about uh your biggest splurge in general have you ever had a big score and then immediately went out and got some to treat yourself um so this is gonna be like an outrageously large brag um, <laughs> <laughs> that's what this is for you're number and five will, all time. You got to brag a little. I'm going to say 
before this, I don't have any large purchases like this, or like anything even remotely in this. Okay, I'm like a, I'm like a little bit bashful because of it, but I'm just gonna get in there and do it. Um, so I went on a. I bought a human hair. I bought a what? I was saying you bought a human. <laughs> I, so I went on an all-time run in these uh, party poker online games and like the GG poker online games in the spring. Um, I went from stuck huge to up up quite a lot. Like it was a really insane stretch, and I had one day in particular that was. Like I won the party, super high roller, 25K for like 550. And I had a couple other good results that day. And then somewhat shortly after that, Stephen Shidwick and his wife, Maureen, were like, hey, do you want to buy a house in Canmore and we could split it? And I was pretty on the fence about it. And then Stephen wrote me uh, like a, three paragraph text about like the value of money and the reason that you have money is to spend time with your loved ones. And I was still going to be an okay investment and yada, yada, yada. So I ended up uh, last month pulling the trigger on buying a splitting a house with them. I've literally never seen it. The border <laughs> is not open and I have no idea when I can. I have no plans on living here. So it's like strictly a vacation home. But I, I bought a, a house in Canmore. Where's that? So, have you heard uh, of Banff? Yes. Uh, so, the, like, the major town is Calgary, and, like, the ski town an hour away is Banff. You can't buy property in Banff because it's, like, a, nation, uh, it's a national park or something along those lines. But the next yeah. suburb over is Canmore. Nice. So, I, I don't know exactly what I'm going to use it for but i just have a dream um like i can see myself imagine you have like your best friend you haven't seen in a long time and he just stays with you for two weeks in your vacation home i'm kind of of the belief that like you can't really put a price on that um so yeah i bought this home like <laughs> sight unseen which is a completely ridiculous uh, and and Stephen and Marina aren't living in it, right? <laughs> uh, they are there uh, right now. Um, uh, and, yeah, so they're there now. Hmm. Well, maybe you could, like, uh, rent it out as an Airbnb. You could become, like, a landlord. <laughs> when you're not using it, just try to get somebody to use it. I mean, I'm, I assume the border will be open in the new year, and then you can check it out. I am hopeful that in the... Spring of this year, I will be there. Uh, snowboarding is one of my favorite things, and it's supposed to be very great there. So I could totally just see myself going for an entire uh, ski season and just posting up. You mentioned uh, the big games and that you've done well. Um, how did Poker Boom 2.0 compare to Poker Boom 2, uh, 1.0 for you? Um, Did I say that right? <laughs> can uh, w can you specify what you mean by Poker Boom 2.0? Like the COVID games? Exactly, the COVID games. Um, like, because you, you go back to like fall of last year, 
3G poker had those 25Ks, which were ginormous. But um, You're right. Yeah, it did start earlier, where all of a sudden and then, it just and seems then it like everyone put money on. Yep. Uh, I was looking into, like, okay, stepping out of poker, and, and then those games happened, and it's like, ooh, this is not the time to step away. And then I started waking up at 4 in the morning to catch people on, like, the other side of the world when the games were going, and played a bunch um this year i started off getting supremely whacked um i think i went on like a one for 40 stretch at 10ks or something as in like i played 40 of them and i only cashed one for like a min cash and i was down like 50 buy-ins at 5ks so maybe all in total i was down like 700 and then uh I had a result, like I won a 25K to get unstuck for like those couple of weeks and still stuck overall in the year. But then once I had the one result, uh, a lot of good success followed to the point where I felt comfortable buying a house. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, Okay, let's see here. Biggest pot you've ever won or lost? Your choice. Um, are we talking online or live? Online or, or live. Or just... So my biggest pot ever is going to be a little bit disappointing because I, I think we were playing 4,000, 8,000 euro and I had a tiny piece of myself. Um, and like the pot wasn't even anything like that interesting. It goes, it was just like, I had, it was, I raised to like 20 K with ace king and this VIP raised me to 50. I think I had like 350 or 400 in my stack. And I just like raised to half my stack, 200, just like keeping him in. And he calls and the flop comes like Jack nine, seven. And I just like close my eyes and shove and he smiles <laughs> and folds. So unfortunately, I think that is my biggest ever pot. Um, which, But in terms of like my own money, um, there was a live at the bike hand. We were playing 200, 400. That turned into a button straddle of 3,200, where I get stacked Jeez. in like a 250K pot. Um, so I, I don't think that was my biggest, but like that is one of the more memorable. And the fact that it was uh, on TV, and like I've seen it a few times, it really stands out to me. Do you still get nervous at all? Um, do I still get nervous? It's, it's various degrees. Um, and when I would say the situation, if I don't have confidence in like my ability to make the right decision, like, uh, I have memories of being nervous on the bubble of super high rollers not just not because of I'm concerned about the missing the money in a situation, but ICM is just really hard to approximate. And you're just, there's so much guesswork where there could be situ- like, say just somebody puts you all in with any two cards or like without looking, there could be situations where you're supposed to fold ace king. And then there's other times where you're supposed to call like a marginal hand and 
the, like the situation of having a complicated spot where you can make a large error. Those are times I can recall feeling a bit nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, a long-winded way of saying yes, but not not regularly. But it's not like you put up a million-dollar buy-in and you're shaking before the cards are dealt. It's not like that. It's situational, you're saying? Yeah. Um, for the most part, in like these really big moments, I like thrive at the opportunity to broadcast my skill to everyone to watch. Mm. Um, well, that kind of leads me to my next question. Uh, do you like telling people that you play poker for a living? Let's say you get into a random Lyft or Uber, and they say, oh, what do you do? Do you tell them the truth? Generally, yes. I would say for the most part, I do enjoy telling people what I do. And if the only times I would have a cop-out answer is I'm just like not feeling social at that moment in time. Um, I really enjoy talking about it. If like the person is like kind of being respectful or like into it a little bit. And then the only times I don't like it is when the guy's like, Oh, my cousin plays poker or I, like I could have been a pro, but Oh God. Um, <laughs> uh, but for the most part, I really enjoy talking about it. And if it's ever a situation where I, I want to deflect it a little bit, I'm happy to just like bring up, like the charity aspect, because then you never know. Like, you convince this guy to donate, it just changes somebody's life or something. Uh, but for the most part, I have, uh, like, I think about my time as a poker player super fondly, and I'm really happy generally to discuss it. Let's see here. Are you superstitious at all? Yeah. Um,. If I am running good with like a certain, like in 2012, I had this Dan Smith nub shirt that was blue and pink that I would wear to all the tournaments. And I wore this red Yankees hat. I think the first time I wore the hat, I won the Aussie Millions 100K. And then I was wearing, uh, I would have very good results with it and I would just make a point to wear it. Um, sometimes I've done things where like uh, in a tournament, I think I swapped like 4.4% with Ike and then one of us won. I'll make a point <laughs> to like exactly have 4.4% in the next one. Um, I think it is fun to be a little bit superstitious <laughs> and it doesn't cost you anything as long as you're like, you're not ad- adjusting your play. So I like to have fun with it. Um, I think gambling is just, like, if you're entirely rational, it's going to be a little bit less fun. For sure. Uh, last year, we did a poll of the high roller players, and you finished second for best style behind Bryn Kenny. What do you think about that? Well, Bryn's one of a kind. I can think of, like, his... Uh, his Japanese robes, uh, kimonos <laughs> that he wears. Um, but are you surprised that you uh, got number two there? 
I suppose I do like to have fun with it, and I'm a little bit like I just started wearing a cowboy hat to these poker tournaments for no real reason, and then and then Doyle was like, "Oh, you like cowboy hats? Here's a cowboy hat." Um, I definitely like to have fun with it, and sometimes I'll just I got I'll just show up to a poker tournament with like a ridiculous mustache for no reason. Um, so I think it's cool that people said I'm stylish. Um, <laughs> Yeah. The uh, oh, what is your favorite tournament destination? Hmm. Um, Aussie Millions in Melbourne in January is really wonderful, and I think I'm gonna have to give that the nod. Yeah, seems to be a popular answer, especially for the time of the year, uh, given the tournaments going on at the same time um tennis term i should say uh where did my note go oh what is at the top of your bucket list i don't really have a bucket list if there's something that's important to me i generally just work at it until I do it and I'm not really someone who uh puts things off for later um so, yeah I don't I know where you want to go <laughs> I've never been to South America um and you know what I guess that is um I guess I can use that as my answer I know this is totally irrational but I just, if I go to South America, I would feel like the need to go on like a two or three month trip because there's just so many parts of it I would I need to see. But I would never like say I'm going to Europe, but I, I have to do it when I can fit in eight different countries, you know, um, just for whatever reason, making it to South America has felt uh, kind of daunting. Oh, I guess also um, I have never gone teleporting and i think it's probably just super awesome so i guess i would include that so maybe i even go for the double whammy uh heliboarding in south america so that's snowboarding jumping out of a helicopter um the helicopter takes you to these completely untouched snow um the difference between like the really prime snow and like random, like say it's like run down on a ski resort, end of the day, uh, man-made snow. It's like the difference between eating the best sushi in the world and eating <laughs> sushi, you know? <laughs> so a helicopter, it takes you to wherever this powder is best on the mountain that day. So every ride is just super primo the whole day. Nice. But at least that's what I hear. I've never done it. Sounds like that's the next thing on your bucket list. All I right. I have to get avalanche trained because basically you're going to the, like, you're going out of the ski resort. It's like, dangerous, but so you have to get training to handle it. But it's on my, it's on my list of things to do for this, uh, this winter. Right. You have to wear that special suit with the, like the locator beacon and stuff like that with the air pocket. Yeah. 
Wow, yeah, that sounds terrifying to me. Um, we end the podcast the same way every time with a question from the random question generator. Let's see what yours is. Okay, perfect. You are assigned to witness protection. Where do you want them to place you if you had your choice? I am assigned to witness protection. So you've witnessed a poker crime. And now for your protection, we have to hide you. I spent a couple weeks this year in rural Colorado, and it was awesome. So I will use that as my answer. Uh, okay. I'll have a lot of land. I think it would be great um, for mental health. It's very pretty. And during snowboarding season, I can drive to the mountains. Right. And you're not too far from poker if you can don a disguise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing the stories. Uh, thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. That's it. That's the show. Thank you once again to Dan for coming on the podcast and for patiently waiting while I dealt with my computer issues. You can follow Dan on Twitter at Dan Smith Holla. Holla as in H-O-L-L-A, not the type of bread. Also, if you are looking for a place to give back this holiday season, go check out Dan's charity at doubleupdrive.com. You can follow us on Twitter at CardPlayerMedia or at Poker underscore Stories. Make sure you hit subscribe, and if you liked what you heard, you can go the extra mile and leave us a five-star rating and a review. Let us know you did so with an email to PokerStories at CardPlayer.com, and we'll hook you up with a free digital subscription to CardPlayer Magazine. Thanks for listening.